I want to begin this morning with a simple exercise in logic. I want you to take, take a look at this hypothetical statement. Canadians are always liars. Now that statement is factually not true. But logically, there is no contradiction in that statement. It is possible for any group of people of a particular nationality to actually be lying all the time. There is no logical impossibility. But now if I add these words, the Canadian Prime Minister says that Canadians are always liars. Now we have a logically impossible statement. Do you know why? Because if it is true that Canadians are always liars, the Prime Minister is a Canadian and therefore he just lied when he said that. In which case it couldn't be true. Now, what does all this have to do with Highway 27? Because in the next stop on Highway 27, we find exactly that kind of a statement. The Apostle Paul, writing to Titus, says these words in chapter 1, verse 12. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars. So here we have a Cretan who says Cretans are always liars. But in the Bible, these things are not given as fuel for exercises in logic. In the Bible, these things have a very, very significant practical role to play. You see, here's the island of Crete. The island of Crete uh, was situated in the Mediterranean Sea, almost directly underneath what we know as Greece today. And you see where it lies in the context of the Apostle Paul's travels through the first century. Now, the Cretans were known for lying and for immorality. In fact, there was even a proverb that to behave like a Cretan was to be a deceitful person. Now, in the book of Acts, we are not told exactly when Paul preached in Crete, but he did. And his young friend Titus was with him. And when the time came for Paul to leave, move on, he left Titus behind in Crete. And he writes this particular letter to Titus. And so that's where we are at in, in our journey on Highway 27. And his goal is to write to Titus to give him some guidance on establishing this people who had come to Christ through the preaching of the Apostle Paul into a viable Christian community in the middle of this very deceitful and ungodly environment in the island of Crete. But before we take a look at that, we need to have a little back-to-school quiz. <laughs> We're not going to go to Highway 27 for eight weeks after this because we have the France series for three weeks and then five weeks of the purpose-driven life. So we won't be picking up our study on Highway 27 till November. And so it's another good reason for us to have a quiz. So please speak out the name of the book and the book loudly. Don't wait for somebody else. Last night they didn't do a very good job. So you have a chance to beat them this time. All right. Which book? First Corinthians. Good. First Timothy. What kind of manual? Leadership manual. Okay. Acts. Shaping the church. Mark. Jesus the servant. Ephesians. Bodybuilding. Worship team. That's enough. (laughs) Second Corinthians. Anatomy of an apostle. Okay, that's about the apostle Paul. Philippians. Happily humble. Okay. Matthew. Jesus the king. Second Thessalonians. Working while you... Wait, okay. Galatians, unshackled, okay. First Thessalonians, on target, church that is on target. Second Timothy, combat manual, you learned that last week. Luke, a perfect man, Jesus the perfect man, okay. Romans, paid in full. 
Colossians, okay. Commander-in-chief. Jesus, the commander-in-chief. All right, Titus. What is Titus all about? Now, many of you remember playing with your kids these little ring toss games where you toss a ring and it hooks something. It's called a ring toss. Only this one, there are ties that are being tossed. So, remember the word tie toss, okay? So, that reminds you of Titus. But who's tossing the ties? There's a duck. Only this duck is a con. So, remember the word con duck, okay? And he's reading a manual. So, Titus is conduct manual. Okay, what's First Timothy? Leadership manual. Second Timothy? Combat manual. And Titus? Conduct manual. Those are the three pastoral epistles. Leadership manual, combat manual, and conduct manual. I think you did about as well as they did last night. <laughs> okay, what? Titus is conduct manual. Several times in this chapter, in this book, you will see references to doing good. Chapter 2, verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Chapter 2, verse 14, in the text that Sean read for us. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 8. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Chapter 3, verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And all of this in contrast to the prevailing environment in Crete. He says, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedience, and unfit for doing good. So, it's inescapable that the theme of the book of Titus is doing good in the church. And chapter 3, verse 8 is probably the key verse. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. The outline of the book is fairly simple and straightforward. In fact, Paul's commission to Titus gives us the two major parts of the book. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The first part is a challenge to protect sound doctrine and the second part, chapters 2 and 3, is to teach the practice of sound doctrine. And in each of these chapters, Paul gives a basic exhortation and a reason for that exhortation. Chapter 1, he says, appoint elders. Why? Because there are deceptive false teachers in the community and the elders need to protect the community from false teaching. Chapter 2, he says, do good in the church. Various groups of people are to be instructed to do good. Why? Because God's grace has redeemed us all for that particular purpose. And then chapter 3, do good to those who are outside the church. And the reason for that, says Paul, is that God was merciful to redeem us when we were just like them. And finally, the book finishes with a final reminder to do good to Christian workers, those who are working and laboring to proclaim the faith. And so that's basically the subject matter of the book of Titus, and here's the outline for it, doing good, devoting ourselves to doing good. Now, the next question is, what is this good that we are supposed to do? And while really all of the New Testament addresses that, Titus gathers up a few of them and gives us some clues as to what particular good he wants Titus to teach the community. 
Chapter 2 verse 4 is talking about the need for older women to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. So the first area of doing good has to do with domestic harmony, spouses loving one another, loving their children, working hard and aiming for purity within the home. That's the first area of doing good. Then he says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try and please them. Not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now he's talking about doing good in the realm of work, where we are to be respectful of those whom we serve and where we are to earn a reputation as being trustworthy men and women who can be trusted with resources, whether they be money or time or any other resources. That's the second area or dimension of doing good. Thirdly, he talks about people who are outside the faith. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. Here he's talking about our attitude of humility and considerateness and peaceableness towards those who are outside of the faith. That's a third broad dimension of doing good that Paul focuses on in his letter to Titus. And then fourthly, he says, do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way to see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities. So here, doing good has to do with being productive citizens who can um, provide for our own needs and provide for the needs of those who are advancing the kingdom of God. So those are the four broad areas of doing good that Paul wants Titus to stress. Uh, and all of them in one way or another have to do with relationships. Harmony within the home, how we relate to those outside of the faith, how we relate to people in the work environment, and how we partner with those who are advancing the gospel together with us. That's the doing good that Paul has in mind, that he says to Titus, you must teach the community in Crete. Now the third question, why is doing good so important? When no, Titus tells us to do good, he defines what the good is. Now why is it so important? And it has to do with the issue of credibility. For example, in chapter 2, verse 4, after giving the instructions to the older woman, excuse me, at the end, they need to do this so that no one will malign the word of God. This is a negative reason for doing good, because he says, if you don't, then people will speak ill of the Holy Scriptures, which you as a follower of Christ are supposed to be uh, committed to and who trust and hold in such high regard. Paul states it positively in chapter 2, verse 9. When in the teaching about the slaves and uh, working, he says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Therefore, according to Paul's letter to Titus, the way in which we live and behave actually acts as a beautiful adornment for the gospel that we say we believe in. It's sort of like uh, when we frame photographs. Ever since my interest in photography, I've learned a lot about the importance of framing too. Now, the frame isn't really why you buy the stuff. You buy the stuff because of the picture. But the frame, if it is properly done, brings out and enhances the beauty of the pictures. In the same way, he says, our behavior, the behavior of Christians doing good in these many ways, in fact, acts like a beautiful frame for Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's why doing good is so important. I remember 25 years ago meeting another Indian gentleman like myself. He was a student in Chicago and he, like me, came from a non-Christian background in India. A very orthodox non-Christian background. 
and he came to become a follower of Jesus Christ in Chicago. And so he eventually wrote back home and told his parents. And he got a letter back from his mother. And the response in that letter was surprising. She was not upset. She was not angry. You know what she said? Well, if you want to become a Christian, that's fine. Just don't live like them. That's how tragically the people back in her country who called themselves Christians had unadorned the gospel of Christ. So she said, be a Christian if you want. Just don't live like the Christians I know. I was remember, remember a conversation I had with my brother-in-law, Ravi. Many of you know him. He's a world-famous evangelist and an apologist. And we were just talking about the obstacles and the blessings of the gospel ministry. And I asked him, I said, what would you say was the greatest obstacle that you faced that would make you quit your ministry? And, you know, he's an apologist. I'm interested in those kinds of things. So I would not have been surprised if his answer had to do with some really difficult intellectual, theological or philosophical question. And how the not having answers to those would be constantly plague him and make him sometimes quit. That's not what he said. You know what he said? He said, so there's the continually having to face the untransformed lives of so many people who call themselves Christians. And 24 years after being a pastor, I understand what he's saying. You know, it's actually quite easy to answer the intellectual objections to Christianity. There are lots of good answers to the theological and the philosophical and the intellectual scientific questions that people pose. When you get tongue-tied is when you have to defend how people who call themselves Christians behave in totally different ways. I remember talking to a pastor on an occasion. And this pastor was talking, at that particular moment in their life, they had spent four or five weeks back to back working 60 hour weeks. And then tears filled that person's eyes as they said, and after all of that I have to face the fact of people who just absolutely refuse to apply and put into practice what we teach them. Salvation is not just a passport into heaven, it is an invitation to become part of a Christian community. That by its very lifestyle makes the gospel so attractive that others are drawn into it and into that life. So those are the three things we've learned so far in the message of Titus. We are to be devoted to doing good. This good primarily involves many aspects of relational harmony in the home and in the world. And it is important because this good makes the gospel message attractive to outsiders. Well, fourth question is, how do we become such a community? How does a community of people become a community of do-gooders of this kind? Well, Paul gives us the answer in Titus. First of all, let's go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 5. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So the first and foremost way in which a community becomes a community of do-good people is through godly elders. And they are primary because, and the reason I say primary is because if you read the book of Titus, you will find at the end, Paul says to Titus, come to see me. He's going to leave behind the elders. When you reduce a church to its essentials, 
You have only two groups of people that make up the church. The people and the elders. If you have that, you have a biblically, theologically defined church. Whether or not there are pastors in that church. And so elders who love the truth, who model that truth, and who teach that truth, are a critical component of moving a church towards becoming a church of do-gooders, in the sense that Titus talks about. But most churches have pastors as well, and so they are just as important. For Paul writes to Titus, he says, so long as you're there, Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. And by that he's talking about the fact that Titus needs to model the very things that he's preaching. So, a second group of people that are absolutely critical within a local church to making it a group of do-gooders is pastors, especially teachers, who will also love the truth, teach the truth, and model that truth, and work together with the eldership of a local church to do that. Now, Titus, in fact, in this section is told to teach three groups of people specifically. He's told to teach older men. He's told to teach younger women, uh, younger men and older women. He's not told to teach younger women for obvious reasons. Who then teaches younger women? And that gives us a clue to the third group of people that are essential. He says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good and in that way train the younger women. So Paul teaches three groups of people and then the older women train the younger women in the church. And generalizing it, I would say that this is the role of mentors. If the role of elders who love the truth and teach the truth and practice the truth along with pastors who do the same thing is critical, then there's another huge level, and we looked at it more last week in 2 Timothy, the role of increasingly maturing men and women who also love the truth, practice the truth, and then teach it to the next generation, become absolutely critical. These are three groups of people, says Titus, Paul in his letter to Titus, that are critical in making a church become a church of do-gooders. But there's a fourth group that Paul says is equally critical. In fact, in some ways, they are the most critical of them all. You know who they are? That's the rest of us. Chapter 3, verse 14, he says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. You see, if those of you who are not pastors, elders, or mentors, are not convinced about the importance of becoming a community of do-gooders that adorn the gospel that is preached in this place. You will not then devote yourself to being good. You will dabble in being good. And if you do not devote yourself to being good, then you will not avail of all of the teaching and the modeling and the training that the other three groups provide. You might show up or you might not show up. But you will certainly not put in the effort required to systematically apply the things that are being taught so that you too can become a transformed community of do-gooders. So there's Paul's answer to the question. How do we become a community of do-gooders? Through elders primarily, through pastors, through mentors, and through a group of people that are eager to be trained and eager to learn to become do-gooders. So that's the four components of the message of Titus. We are to be devoted to doing good. This good primarily involves relational harmony in the home and in the world. This good makes the gospel attractive to outsiders. And this happens through elders, pastors, and mentors training eager learners. That's the summary of the book of Titus. Now, if this was all there was to it, we have a problem. And the problem is simply this. If this was all there was to Christianity, it would be no different from any other religion that was moral in nature. There are many other religions that teach that their followers should be good. There are many religions that teach about domestic harmony. There are many religions that have teachers and elders within their framework. 
There are many religions that teach people, not all, but many religions that teach people to be gracious towards those who are outside their faith. There are many religions, in fact all of them, teach them to support the propagators of their religion. Therefore, if this kind of doing good was all there was, what would rescue Christianity from becoming just another do-good religion? And there's another problem if we don't have an answer to that question. If it is only conceived as a religion of doing good, then these pastors and elders and mentors who are responsible for training such a community can become driven by legalism. They can begin to force and control their people and manipulate them and plead with them and do all kinds of arm twisting because they've got to make the people behave in such a way. And that's not going to create a very attractive community, let me tell you. Therefore, we have to answer this one more question. What rescues Christianity from just another do-good religion? And Paul answers that very well because all of this exhortation to do good for all these reasons is set in the context of some magnificent theological assertions. And the central one is that passage that Sean talked about. It's not accidental that God kept bringing him to those three verses. Last night when Vijay was planning the service that was read last night, God put the same verses upon his heart. In his chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. This is, a, it is these verses that tell us that this do-good faith is neither moralism nor legalism. But what is it? For the grace of God, read it together with me. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good. Now that's a mouthful, that's 85 words. Now if a picture is worth a thousand words, it's certainly worth 85 words. And in order to fix this thing clearly in my mind, and I trust fix it in your mind, I put it together in the form of a diagram. Don't, don't bother trying to copy it down. It's all in your study guides. You can pick it up. Try to follow it, understand it. Because this is critical to answering the question, how this religion is not just a do-good religion. First of all, Paul talks about two appearances in this passage. In the original word, they're the word uh, for manifestation or epiphanies. Appearances. The one is an appearance in grace. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. That is referring to the time when Jesus came for the first time. When he came in weakness, when he came as a baby, when he came as a man, when he lived among us, when he allowed himself to be crucified, and when he died, and then when he rose again. That's the grace of God that brought salvation that has already appeared. Then he talks about a future appearance. He says, when Jesus will appear in glory, when he will come back a second time. These are the two central pillars around which these verses are built. A past appearing of Jesus in grace and a future appearing of Jesus in glory. And all of us as Christians are living between these two manifestations. We are living between these two appearances, one in the past and one in the future. And then in the rest of the verses, Paul fills out what is happening in between these two. First of all, he amplifies the grace, the, the salvation that grace brought. First of all, he says it, it was redemption from wickedness. That deals with the salvation that is deliverance from the penalty of sin as God sets us free from his wrath. Then he talks about the fact that we are now, Jesus is now purifying his church. That is talking about redemption from the power of sin right now. 
And then he says, of course, one day as we wait for that blessed hope that is coming back. And that blessed hope is when Christ comes back in glory. We will be glorified with him and we will be delivered from the very presence of sin as well. So this is what is happening in between these two pillars. In between these two appearings, one of Christ in grace in the past and glory in the future. We have been redeemed from the penalty of sin. We are being redeemed from the power of sin. And we will be redeemed from the presence of sin. Redemption, purification and glorification are what salvation is all about. And then Paul says, this grace that brought salvation is now teaching us. The way Jesus purifies us is that that grace that brought salvation is continuing to teach us to say no to ungodliness and yes to self-control. And Jesus is purifying for himself his own people who are eager to do what is good. Now, when you put it in this context, you see where all this business of doing good fits in. These are not just arbitrary moral injunctions. Every one of these exhortations to do good is set in the context of this magnificent theology. Now, you say, what does that different make in practice? Well, let me give you an illustration. I want you to think with me now about one of those particular goods that we read about in Titus. And since many of us, almost all of us, work or have worked at some point or another... This might be the most relevant to all of us. Imagine a situation where you have to, a boss that, that you don't like. And Paul tells us, you need to respect that person. Now, if it was mere moral religion, you could kind of grit your teeth and say, well, boy, I sure wish I weren't a Christian. We feel like that many times. But then I can really tell him what I think of him and not feel guilty about it afterwards. But because I am a Christian, I can't do that, so I guess I just have to be respectful. That's a miserable way of living. But what if you thought this way? What if you took a few moments and said, I am living between two appearances of Jesus. I am living between his appearance and grace when he brought salvation. And I am living and waiting for that day when he will come again in glory. And this salvation that is being enacted between these two pillars has redeemed me from the penalty of my sin will one day redeem me from the presence of sin and is now redeeming me, purifying me from the power of sin. And this same grace that has done all these things is continuing to teach me to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness and is teaching me to say yes to live a self-controlled life. And Jesus is building for himself a people who are eager to do good. And I am one of those people. I think I can respect my boss. Won't you make a difference? Will it make a difference in how we think? It doesn't take that long to bring all of that thinking into play. Three times already this past week I've had to do that. And I'll tell you, it works. It makes a big difference. It is this, it is this that rescues Christianity from a mere do-good religion and exalts it from legalism and moralism to purity and holiness. The grace of Christ that continues to teach us. And not just in this case. Paul says, for example, in the, in the do-good to those who are outsiders. And by the way, that's the one he amplifies the most. After telling us that we need to be humble to those who are outside, he says, why? At one time, we too were foolish. The thinking, here's the thinking again. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of, there it is again, the grace. But when the kindness and love of God Savior appeared, there's the third appearing. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. 
So when we are asked to do good to some unbeliever, who, who does not live a very God-honoring life, whose life is more marked perhaps by unrighteousness and impurity and rebellion against God, how are we going to be kind to those people? How are we going to be humble to those people? Do good religion? Won't work. But Paul says, stop and think. Think that apart from the grace of God, you're just like that person. And you might be just a little bit more gracious and kind to those people. Perhaps we'd have a lot less problem with evangelism if more of us Christians lived like this. You see, it all has to do with how we think. There's another thing that you'll see in Titus that, that emphasizes this. The very first thing that this grace teaches us to say yes to is self-control. And six times in this letter, you will, or five times in this letter, you will see the reference to self-control. Every group of people, Paul says, teach them to be self-controlled. And it's an interesting word in the original language. And I won't bore you with all the details, but if you look at how this word was used and how it was put together, it carries with it the central idea of wholesome thinking. So self-control doesn't come from gritting our teeth and forcing ourselves to do good. The self-control that enables us to set aside our instinctive reactions and respond in this kind of goodness in all these areas we've looked at comes from a mind that has learned to think soundly. And Paul says to Titus, elders need to be self-controlled, pastors need to be self-controlled, mentors need to be self-controlled. And we have to teach other people to be self-controlled. And you know, when I put all of that together, a beautiful picture began to emerge. I keep it as a vision for Rexdale Alliance Church in this area if you want. Self-controlled elders and self-controlled pastors working together to train self-controlled mentors who will then train self-controlled people who are eager to do good. And one subset of these self-controlled people are self-controlled parents who are raising self-controlled children. This is the message of Titus. You see, the highest form of government that God wants for us is self-control. Where the Holy Spirit of God has made us control ourselves. But children are not naturally self-controlled. And so you need self-controlled parents and families. Family government that then teaches children self-government. <laughs> but families sometimes are not automatically self-controlled. Therefore, you have they need mentors and specifically in a church that trains them. And then right up at the top, if you will, are elders who are self-controlled elders, who provide that kind of government. And of course, all of this is under God, who is in total control of everything. Those are some of the pictures that come from the book of Titus, that I trust will encourage us in our pursuit of becoming a people who will do good. So let me just uh, finish with a few next steps. First of all, get a grip on where doing good fits into the big picture. Grip this diagram. That's why I put it in, into the study guide. When you finish with your study guide, you can clip out the diagram and paste it in your Bible. Laminate it and hang it in your study place. Paste it upon your fridge. Wherever. Because in the home, in the work, in the church, it's this that governs the kind of thinking that will result in being self-controlled men and women. So understand. Understand where doing good fits into the big picture. And then those called to train Elders, pastors, mentors, keep training by teaching and modeling this kind of lifestyle. And then all of us, the rest of us who are called to learn, let us devote ourselves to it. And I'd like you to begin by, by choosing a particular situation. Maybe it's a particular individual or situation within your home. 
Maybe, it's a, maybe it is a boss or a fellow worker at work. Maybe it's that neighbor next door who's an ungodly, unrighteous, non-Christian who's just driving you nuts by their behavior. Whatever it is, make it specific. And ask the grace of God that still teaches you to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness. To make you a self-controlled man or a self-controlled woman who is eager to do good. And then begin to do that good to that particular person. And see what might happen. As we move now towards the communion service. As those who are helping me serve the communion up to the front. If I'll invite you to come. I want us to take a few moments in quiet. We're going to continue to receive the grace of God. The sermon is just continuing. Only now you're going to be active participants. Because these are mysterious means of grace. (laughs) Christ continues to purify us. Not only as we worship him. In song. Not only as we give him our offering as an act of worship, not only as you hear a sermon preached and your mind renewed, but as we now participate in this, in this mysterious uh, rite called the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. And so I want you to come with expectation and anticipation that this Jesus who came in the past, who brought this grace that brought us salvation, that this grace will continue to teach us And that the Christ that we now eat symbolically will continue to reinforce Jesus, the written word that was preached to you a few moments ago. With the hope that as we leave this place, we would leave a community just a little bit more eager to become men and women who will learn to do good and devote ourselves to doing good. So elders and others who are serving, if you will come to the front, we take a few moments to pray. One very specific aspect of doing good in the body, of course, is to be aware of needs within the body. And uh, communion is uh, set in the scriptures in the context of many exhortations, one of which is to discern the body. In fact, Paul says, don't, don't eat without discerning or being aware of the fact that we are all part of one body. And so, this is a good opportunity today to take a few moments to pray for people in our congregation who are in particular need of others doing good to them. Uh, I few weeks ago, I asked you to pray for Harvey Crouch. Just to give you an update, I talked to Harvey this week. He's uh, out of the hospital. All of the fluid from his lungs have been removed. He's walking under his own power now. He's in a residence, able to uh, walk to the place where he has food. And he has an appointment with the oncologist sometime in the next couple of weeks. And they will then decide what, if anything, to do as far as the cancer is concerned. So he asked us to continue to pray for him. Also, last week, Pastor Kerr and others reminded you of... uh, uh, Tony D. Almeida's sister, Lucia, she's 32 years old, and she was sick, and the uh, biopsies that were done have confirmed the fact that she has multiple sclerosis, a very aggressive form of it, apparently, and so she has to go through fairly intensive uh, chemotherapy in the next little while, and uh, Tony and Melody asked us to pray for them. And so, as we do that and mourn with those who mourn, we also want to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so, I want to take this opportunity to also announce the wedding bands for Mandy Verdi and Jerome Dwight, who are being married in Rexdale Alliance Church on Saturday, September the 18th, and they are hereby duly published. So, will you join me as we pray together? Lord Jesus, thank you that uh, all of our lives are lived under your grace. 
where would we be apart from this amazing grace? And we can sing uh, that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. We thank you for that grace. Thank you for these elements that represent your body and blood, the death through which that grace was made available to us sinners. That while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And this is how you demonstrated your love for us. And we long to become a people, Father, that you are purifying, eager to do good, eager to do good in our homes, eager to do good in the church, and eager to do good in our neighborhoods, our communities and places of work, so that we might indeed make the gospel of Jesus more attractive. Father, we lift up our brother Harvey before you at this time and pray that uh, you may continue to give him peace of mind. Thank you for the decades through which he has renewed his mind with the word of God. Thank you for the books that he loves, the sermons that he listens to. And I trust, Father, that the memory of years lived well will continue to sustain him. Give doctors and nurses and others wisdom in guiding him to the right choice of action in the future. We also lift up Tony and Maladia before you as they, as they struggle and anguish with uh, a body of a 32-year-old that is ravaged in this way. We do not understand your ways, O God. Somehow some things seem more easy to accept in a 90-year-old than a 32. But your ways are above our ways and your thoughts are far above our thoughts and ways. And we honor you and worship you by acknowledging you as sovereign even though we do not understand. We also pray for many in our congregation whom these two represent. We continue to pray for Pastor Wayne and Betty as uh, Jennifer uh, <coughs> looks ahead to an important surgery. We thank you for your sustaining grace in their lives over so many months of trials and testings. And pray that your good hand will continue to rest upon them. For many others, Father, who bear chronic pain and illness, and who do it quietly and bravely in our midst, we thank you for them. We pray that you will not leave them alone in their suffering, but that you will alert members of the body of Christ who are around them in many, many practical ways to minister to them and sustain them. So they will know that they are loved by God because he loves them enough to send people to them who love them. We rejoice also with those who celebrate uh, births of new children and celebrate marriages and for Jerome and Mandy as they represent many, many couples that have joined themselves in holy matrimony this year in this church and those who yet will. And we pray that these will be the nuclei of godly homes, Father. Where doing good, where self-control is characterized. Where a whole church then becomes blessed by their presence. For all of these things we are not sufficient and so we ask that your spirit will feed us the living bread. <laughs> This manna from heaven, that is the body and blood of Jesus himself. May we eat and participate with thanksgiving. And may the songs that we sing that affirm the truth surrounding this act continue to make its, make, build faith into our hearts even more. You are honored by our faith, Father. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. This cup is not only a cup of redemption, but also of grace. Uh, the grace that continues to teach us and continues to purify for himself a people that are eager to do good. Let us drink together and receive his grace. My benediction for you, just based on those same words from Titus chapter 2. Every time this week you have an opportunity to do good, whether in your home or in your work or in your neighborhood. 
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that brought you salvation teach you in that precise moment to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness. And may he fill your heart with such a delight in knowing that Christ is purifying you as part of a group of people eager to do good. And that in your eagerness you will then live self-controlled lives and be a blessing to those around you. Go in Jesus' name.